we're back at it again. I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go that far, but about, <laughs> about myself, like I'm happy for you to go that far about yourself. I, you know, it's exciting, but there's also trepidation and a variety of other emotions. So I think this really is season two, although I think season two, episode one, except that um, I don't think the podcasting platform we use is sophisticated enough to allow us to number it a season. So I don't know how I'm going to number it. But anyway, look, there's an elephant in the room. The literal figurative elephant of the GOP, Grand Old Party, Republican Party. It's a bit misleading because it's really not the Republican Party. It's a beautiful big boy, Donald Trump. <laughs> they've, they've come for our beautiful, beautiful boy. Big old boy. <laughs> I don't think I said big old. But in any case, <laughs> he... No, this is good though, because this requires us to go deep, deep into your political changes over the last year or two, Mark, or at least your deep ambivalences. Ambivalence is right, James. Look, I, you know, it's required me to think about this as well. Like this moment, I mean, I wrote this blog post, technically. It was more than a blog post. I mean, it was, it was more than a blog post though. It wasn't just your private blog, was it? No, this is the use of the phrase blog to describe this a bit, which is, you know, telos scope. Uh, it's interesting that they choose the name telescope because they very easily could have could have just truncated it to telescope, but they have two S's. It's telescope. So I guess a pun on telescope, but it's the blog run by the journal Telos, and they invited me to write something. And I wrote this piece, which I've been thinking about for a while. This is before the election. It's like a week out from the election. I wrote this piece saying that, you know, everyone has this deep ambivalence towards Trump. And this is partly because I've been reading and teaching for it. Uh, but it's clearly the case that people hate and or love Trump in ways which, like, I mean, they're sexual. I'll go that far. I'll go the Freudian distance with this. Like, the, the level of fulmination on the left about Trump, the, the, the sheer joy in the hostility and hatred towards Trump is absolutely psychosexual. Like, liberals are, you know, frothing, as you would say, James. Completely agree. Hatred, seething. No, I completely agree. And I just wanted to say before, before we move on, two things. One is that I think that thing that you wrote, that blog post you wrote, and surely blog doesn't capture the full grandeur of what you wrote. But it, <laughs> probably, the best, probably the best thing I've, re- I've read of yours, which admittedly I haven't read all of your things, obviously, but it's truly outstanding. And <laughs> second of all, the best thing about it all was that your consecutive realisation, which came afterwards, which is that it also applied to you. Your love of Trump knows no bounds. Well, it knows, it knows a bound. I mean, the bound is important here. Like, but this, this is, uh, well, I mean, I'm not, I'm hesitant to say this is right because um, what, what you just said is wrong. I'm not, I'm not copying to have an unbounded love, love of John Trump. But what, what you say is right, which is I, I kind of wrote that thinking, you know, stupid liberals, they are like in love with Trump in their hatred. And I don't know how they're going to cope with Trump not being there anymore. But unfortunately, it turns out that, I do not know how to Trump. <laughs> uh, weird, <laughs> weird, uh, weird step. Don't know how to cope. Wow, wow. Well, I mean, well, it doesn't really. I mean, I don't know how to Trump. Doesn't really mean that. But I don't. I do not know how to cope with Trump not being there because, and I didn't realize this was the case for me, but clearly was. 
Trump being president of the United States has defined the world for me now for the last four years. And I, I don't know where my coordinates are now without Trump being there. Uh, assuming that Trump isn't there, which actually I don't assume, but that's another question which we'll undoubtedly get onto. Uh, we're recording this on the, on the 12th of November, but I take it that there is still some doubt about where this election is going to fall. Now, that could be wrong, but I think, I mean, I think, you know, we, once again, we see both sides doing ludicrous things here, but the extent to which liberals just want to be absolutely certain that there's no way that this election can go the other way is mistaken and itself a cope. And the, the opposite, of course, is clearly the case, namely that the the self-assurance of Trump supporters about how they, their, their boy is still going to win uh, is like ridiculous, not because he is absolutely sure not to, but because they seem to think he will. Sorry, James. No, not at all. That all seems right to me, but, and there's, there's my, there's my tick yet again, but I'm interested. I'm interested about this because I have gone in the opposite direction. I think maybe not the opposite direction, but certainly another direction where I've just cut off completely from the election because I can't deal with it anymore because, because it's just, it's too much. I, the only, you know, one of the only good things about the election being over is simply that I don't have to hear about it anymore. But I'm interested to know, because I, I genuinely don't know, where is this, you suggest that there is genuine doubt on this, and I'm, I'm very willing to accept that, but where is this doubt coming from other than from sections of the right-wing media? Well, it's, it's the only place it's coming from. But unfortunately, um, I mean, we're, we're, we're in a, a moment of, decision of truth between two versions i mean there's there's transparently i mean there's no neutral ground media here like really like mm. it, to the extent there's a neutral ground it's it's media organizations which you get with the murdoch media here in the us uh, to some extent the murdoch media still has people who are trump supporters and are willing to put pro-trump stuff out but they also have anti-trump stuff so you know, fox news very clearly for example called the election for biden as did like the other mainstream media organizations but there are also people at fox news who are clearly on on the side of trump and you know are, are pushing the line that it's it's the election's being stolen and, and the possibly trump will still win um but basically I, I just don't i think we're in a moment where there's you know if you if you read the liberal media i mean it, it's incredible and perhaps we should reflect on how we've got to the point where i, I can really unironically use that term i mean a capital l liberal in the in the american sense it's confusing but this you know if you if you read the, the mainstream media you know outlets we read fairfax in australia you read the abc in australia you read you know you watch cnn you get a version of reality which is no more reflective of reality you know as it is than reading the opposite stuff on the right i i think i mean again hard to tell but I, I tend, you know, the, the mainstream media is now so left-leaning within US politics that they are nakedly partisan. I mean, and they're, they're absolutely upfront about that. There's no, there's no concealment about this. So consequently, the version of events you get from them, I don't think you can trust it. And I, the, the only recourse I have with this is to read the other side which means really, really right-wing stuff, not even just Fox News, which I now, during this election, I've been looking at in a way I've never looked at it before. But, uh, you know, stuff I'm looking at, again, which I've basically never looked at before, Breitbart, for example, like, 
which is clearly more, you know, it's, it's to the right of Fox. So they have a more clearly pro-Trump line. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know what else you can do. I think the loss of orientation is the right way to describe this because I feel a similar way. I mean, my, my response, as always, is just to pull back entirely rather than, rather than do what you've done. But... Uh, which you know, which is an ongoing joke, but but I should say that I agree that that is the correct approach. Like, no, absolutely. There is my my the extent to which I have got sucked into psychically this election cycle is appalling. It's yeah, sinful it's bonkers. and cursed, and I should not have. <laughs> I should have not, not not have gone this way. I mean, what, what watching from the outside that does that does seem to be the way it's going. In terms of your your psychic breakdown, I mean. No, but, but seriously, go back to this. I mean, I, I, I basically agree. With, so I am with you on, on one front, which is to say that the mainstream media in America, whether it constitutes as left-wing or not, I'm not really sure insofar as I think perhaps the whole thing has shifted insofar as it represents sort of neoliberal consensus or whatever. It doesn't really matter. But certainly from my behalf in terms of lack of orientation, I genuinely don't know. And this, again, this is probably something that's close to both our hearts and is a running theme of, of the pod. I genuinely don't know what people who are celebrating Biden are celebrating. Like I genuinely don't know what like the semantic content of people who say words about it are saying because, and I can fall back on the usual cliches about the, the continual droning of children in Pakistan, all of which I think are completely correct and pertinent insofar as, you know, America as a global power that continues to shit on those who don't have the power to resist. I think that's basically true. But this kind of growing mythos that Trump was an anomaly and that now we can return to business as usual, if if that were the case, which I think in some ways it is true, there's an element of that that is true, why would you want to return to business as usual? That's a genuine, like, it's just genuine confusion. I don't know what you think about this, Mark, but I, I really, I feel like I've lost, because I can remember in my late teens, early 20s, even despite my suspicions about people like Obama, you know, still a general sense of happiness about him being elected or, or, or re-elected in 2012. With Biden, I don't have any sense of that. I have no sense of pleasure about what the Democrats represent. I'm going to go back to the beginning of what you were saying. So this this thing about the left, right, I'm going to take your point there that, you know, I described the, the media as, as supporting the left now in the US. What I mean by that is simply that, you know, bourgeois politics in the US is divided into two camps, which are defined as left and right wing, the Democrats and, and the Republicans. And what, what has happened, which is... I kind of want to say it in itself worrying is that they, you know, the media now by and large simply supports one side of that, the, the, the designated left-wing side, which I think we'd agree is relatively more left-wing. Like, I don't, I don't think that's, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, uh, maybe actually, I mean, I, I, well, I think that's true of the Democrats versus Republicans generically, actually I'm less clear uh, if that's true of Trump versus Biden, because the extent to which Trump is, is conventionally right-wing um, well, I guess it's pretty obvious in a lot of ways. Okay, fine. But, the, you know, it's not because I believe the Democrats are really left-wing in some kind of absolute sense. Anyway. Yeah, sure. This question, I mean, 
yeah, this this is just uh, this is a big question for me. Like, what is what what what's going on? Like, why? I mean, this uh, we'll go back to your question really, like right at the beginning, like the geniality of my my political evolution over the last period of time, which is something I, I find myself asking a lot. How has have my political views altered? And it's weird because part of me wants to go, oh, like, they haven't altered, like reality has changed and just left me having the same views, but somehow has reassigned me a different point on the political spectrum. Like, you know, my political compass scores are basically the same. We're still in the, the you know, lower, lower left quadrant. Uh, but that's, that's not entirely true. Like I have moved and they've moved as a result of the, the change of politics around me. And look, I... I Increasingly, I'm thinking that, that there's a single moment that caused me to change my political stance, and it was 2016, the election of Donald Trump. Or more specifically, and here we're going to get right back to what you were just talking about, the reaction to the election of Donald Trump. Because when Trump was elected, like, I didn't think it was a big deal, basically. Like, it, it, this has never seemed to me to be a big deal. And the extent to which the left in general, so not everybody, so not the furthest reaches of the left. So like not, or I mean, definitely, you know, there are bits of the left, which I think were kind of impervious to this because they're so far on, on the left wing that, you know, people just don't, don't care about this. Which I kind of think it maybe is my issue. Like, I'm so far to the left that I don't see the difference, the relevant differences between Clinton and Trump in that way. Uh, I mean, I think there are relevant differences, but it's, you know, you can be ambivalent about it. Like it's not, it's, it's certainly not for me, like a major catastrophe that, that Trump won vis-a-vis, you know, rep, the previous presidency of Obama or the you know, putative Clinton presidency. But what happened when that, when Trump won is that the left in general to, to my mind, at least, you know, has it seemed to me, just went insane. And, you know, all these kind of left-wing cultural points. And I, particularly, I'm thinking of two radio shows, actually, which were Late Night Live in Australia, which I was a really avid listener to prior to, prior to Trump winning. And This American Life uh, on NPR in the US, which, again, like I listened to, you know, I mean, you can say some negative things about those shows. Like, they, it's not that they had my exact politics, but they were left-wing shows. In reaction to Trump, both just became just completely obsessed with Trump in a negative way. And that this Trumpian moment was like some kind of special thing that justified like a total rethinking of what they've been doing for years and years. They totally reoriented themselves around the Trump opposition. And that that idea of reality, that tr- the Trump presidency was like some kind of new major break with reality. Um, I just, I couldn't relate to it. And it paradoxically basically pushed me to the right in the sense that um, it made me really suspicious of the left because the the left was having these crazy reactions. Uh, But I mean, at least until pretty recently, it's not like I've been, I haven't been willing to admit that I wasn't left wing anymore or something like that. It was more, you know, that other people on the left had gone crazy, not that, you know, um, the, 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 I'm still quite attached to the idea that I might represent a more conventional, non-deranged left-wing perspective. Yeah, that seems fair. And I think, I mean, that's the. I think you're exactly right to suggest that it's the it's the far left faction 
that's that position from which you begin, which is to say that makes no differentiation between whoever might be president of the United States. But I think what's more interesting is your next move, which is to say, so to, to see no distinction or no distinction of any real substance between someone like Trump and, say, Clinton or Obama. But then the next step, which is to then be totally confused and alienated by what the mainstream left liberals' response was, because I don't actually understand it. And it comes back to what you're saying, because you're saying what they were doing was crazy. And I think that's, I think that's basically right. But I don't actually know why it was crazy. Like, what, was it, what was it about Trump that enraged them so much? And I, I genuinely don't know. And I, I think I, I, felt like, I feel like I would have known in 2016 because I, unlike you, was shocked in 2016. I was shocked and I was appalled. But then it was in like, in similar ways to you, it was over the next year that I began to see just the insane response to him from, from, from the kind of liberal left. So it's, again, if, if, if we had to put yourself in the mind of, you know, someone who writes for the New York Times, heaven forbid, what, what is it that's so, so outrageous? I, 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 I genuinely don't it's, know. It's funny this, actually, because as you're talking, I, I kind of realised like, that I do, I do know or at least have a pretty coherent theory about why this is. I mean, actually, you know, my reaction, and we've talked about this a little bit, but, like, my reaction to what's just been happening the last week was exactly the same as yours, which is like, why are people celebrating the Biden victory? I can't understand. But actually I do, I do have a theory about this, which was the theory of the article I had, which I wrote early in 2018, which um, came out in Telos this year. So the, uh, not the current issue, but the previous issue, I had an article called, and the, art, the title of the article doesn't immediately suggest what it's about. It's called um, Foucault and the Politics of Language Today. I think something like that. Uh, I think I read that one, yeah. And but it's your typical typical MGK move, which is to put um, Foucault at the beginning of the title. Uh, although it does, it just does relate to Foucault. But look, you know, that theoretical side is not what really interests us here and like how it might relate to Michelle Foucault's thought. Um, the, the point is, the, uh, what, has, what happened, and this is what I think, you know, that was my diagnosis written in 2018 about what had happened at that point, only just over a year before with the original victory of Trump. That... People who have this re reaction to Trump, like the this huge swathe of left-wing opinion in the West that has this reaction to Trump, they are they have systematically conflated Trump's rhetoric with reality. So, and it, I think it's extremely revealing about where we're at now. And I think this is something we've talked about, you know, in season one of Metacritic, that people now are so stuck in the discourse they're so detached from reality. I don't want to say people, I mean, the kind of people, you know, the kind of people who are on Twitter, you know, not, not, for example, the, you know, poor people and minorities among whom Trump's vote this election increased, yeah. but the brain damaged middle-class white liberals among whom his vote tanked because those people are in a disc discourse bubble. And when, Basically, back in 2016, you had Trump and Trump said a whole lot of things that were like really seriously on the nose. I mean, to the extent like that people considered them just absolutely unacceptable, totally outrageous. You know, Trump like mocked a disabled person's disability. He mocked a woman for menstruating. 
right? You know, all these things like Trump, uh, you know, alleged, I mean, some of this stuff is, is you know, I, th- I think probably deserves some more pushback, you know, like the claim that Trump, um, you know, was was admitting to sexually assaulting women because he said he liked to, to kiss women without asking their prior consent. Uh, but even if he did, even if that, that was the case, that in, in all these cases, there's just an, an absolute failure to be able to distinguish between stuff people say and what they mean and what they do, which are all three different, three, all three of those are different things. And I honestly think, I don't know if I you know, want to pat myself on, my, on the back for having massive acuity about this, or simply that, you know, for whatever reason, I'm in touch with this point and other people aren't. But I, it's pretty obvious to me that when Trump says all this shit, like it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't mean that that's what's happening. And that is, it's incredible because we've had an entire four years of Trump now. And maybe this is why you now, James, are like more on my plane with this. We've had four years of, as I've been arguing, Trump basically not doing any of the stuff he said he was going to do. Like Trump has not, like the build a wall is the most obvious thing because he like, that was the main plank of his 2016 election. He said he was going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. And he has not built a wall, let alone made Mexico pay for it. Just didn't happen. And no one is pointing this out. Like none of his left-wing critics are attacking. It's the most obvious thing to attack him on as a politician. Say you had a single campaign promise and you didn't do jack shit about it. Well, they can't campaign on that because the entire left-wing position against Trump is premised on the idea that he did do it. That everything he said is real. And the reality that nothing that Trump says is real, which obviously looks terrible. I mean, in fact, if you wanted to destroy his support, that'd be a pretty good way to do it. You point out, look, this guy's full of shit. He says all this bad stuff and he doesn't mean it. And that would totally destroy at least the sections of his support that, you know, like are openly racist and so on. But actually the left are totally invested in Trump being supported by racists. The last thing the left wants to do is suggest that Trump shouldn't be supported by, by racist white they, they badly need, need him to, to be in that position psychologically. And it's worth also pointing out that supporters of Trump for, for this election, almost all of them, and when I say all of them, those I read about, so probably only like five, but you know, th- those who you hear interviewed always cite the fact that he gets shit done when it's clearly empirically the case that he does not. So that's what's real. I think that's what's really interesting here is that we actually have and this is sort of an issue close to my heart, even though I don't really understand it, is it seems to me, and this was actually another blog post in, in on Telos, is that really what we're dealing with here is rather than on the level of, obviously there's a political dimension, but what we're really dealing with here is a, competing, a series of competing uh, myths. And because I think this is particularly telling because when we talk about the things that people are citing in Biden's behaviour and rhetoric that comes as the most relief uh, what uh, what are often referred to as sort of you know pres- presidential aspects, people people referring to the way he spoke about you know bringing the country together, all these kinds of things. The fact that he has two dogs in the White House, which is somehow meant to be some kind of iconic moment, you know, the return of the presidential dog, or in this case, two dogs. But I mean, it's also worth noting that Trump said a lot of that stuff in his own uh, acceptance speech. But anyway, but uh, the point here would be that. The things that I find most repellent in the whole mythology of American politics are seem to seem to be what people like the most in Biden, and it seems like Trump is just offering another kind of American mythology, which left liberals 
uh, which has always been there, are sort of horrified is still emergent, is still sort of bubbling away. I don't know. Maybe that's not true. I don't know. But it, it's certainly striking, I think, that the things that people are citing about Biden's policies and behaviour are what just bullshit, uh, nonsense. I mean, I think I agree with you about Biden. I mean, you know, just at a, at a basic level, and I guess again, we agree with about this. I mean, but Biden's just a totally unappealing figure. Like, I can't see anything that would get anyone excited about Biden. But I mean, I, I you know, pointed this out to you before. I mean, I, I don't think anyone is excited about Biden. I mean, Biden was a placeholder candidate. You know, he's, he's, he's really a, a nullity. Like, he didn't campaign. Like, he, he, no one knows what his policies are, really. It doesn't matter. Like, he was an anti-Trump candidate. And that made sense politically because anti-Trumpism is the dominant ideology today. Like, it's a purely negative, like, Trump is bad. That, that's, that's what's going on. The really extraordinary thing about this election was that despite every indication, um, Trump's support has, has basically held up or indeed in, in absolute terms increased. More it's increased for yeah. Trump this time than the previous time. And despite the fact that, you know, we've seen all the way through terrible, terrible approval ratings, everyone hates Trump, you know, and, and the poll numbers. But yet people in record numbers turned out to vote for Trump after he did not. And across demographics. Well, that's really important. Like, that's important that, yeah, that's important that Trump's, Trump's base of support shifted towards minorities, away from, from white people. I mean, this, you know, I think confirms to an extent a suspicions that, that we've had, maybe I shouldn't bring you into it, but we've had all along, which is that, you know, a lot of, a lot of anti-Trumpism as an ideological movement it's about it signals about minorities, but it's white people signaling about minorities. It's you know, and I wouldn't say that this is true of BLM as an organization itself. Obviously, it has has black leadership, but Black Lives Matter as a hashtag movement, as an Instagram phenomenon, and so on, a meme, that is largely driven by by white people. It's you know, it's and it's the kind of form of activism which is. Not not relevant to the lives of of the people it claims to to represent. Actually, you know, to to a to a large extent. Let me ask you this, because this is true of me, and I suspect it's probably true of you. And this is perhaps a, perhaps not a not a not a good thing to admit. But one of the reasons there was an element in me that was disappointed about Trump's loss, or at least puzzled by my ambivalent feelings was that it, and this was often, and you saw this in, in the fact that many people, I think this comes back to what I just said, cited you know, the main thing about Biden was that he would quote unquote, lower the temperature, right? And part of me was like, no, actually the temperature needs to be in, increasingly heightened. Like I, I will miss the repeated off chops shit that kept happening in America. And I think, I suspect that's actually from a from my kind of, further left position which is to say no make things more unstable make things more uncertain and ambiguous because that's where political opportunity emerges from now that's probably idealistic fantasy but i think that's where ultimately my disappointment came from was not so much in trump but in the fact that it's precisely in those kinds of conditions that something genuinely left-wing can emerge from now that's obviously easily uh 
responded to, but I think that is where, where I was at. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, in outline, it sounds like you're kind of putting a kind of accelerationist argument forward, something like that. But I think I think there is something to be said there, actually, that's not because I, I'm kind of allergic to accelerationism or opposed to it. So, but I think there's there's an argument to be made there. I mean, something I just want to, want to circle back a little bit and mention because it, it relates to what you were saying before. I assume you would have come across this because it was so widely covered. But Obama specifically putting this pitch forward that you need to vote for Joe Biden because if you vote for Biden, you can stop thinking about politics. I didn't see that, but it was it wasn't just Obama. It was it was an explicit Democratic pitch with this election, which is like you are sick of thinking about politics. When Joe Biden is president, you won't have to think about it. You have to think about yeah. Trump. Trump bothers you. Uh, this this is the pitch, right? It's an explicit pitch to, explicit pitch to depoliticize. <laughs> yeah, the, exactly the right. Now, and I think this is this is what I think is like the positive dimension to to Trump, or like what I would miss if Trump were not president, is that there's no contradiction. Like with Trump being president, there seems there seems to be a continual. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to get rationally. I don't actually want to go down this route but i think emotionally this is how it works because when trump is president everything seems a knife edge and it seems like anything could happen yeah exactly you seem it feels like you're in a position where 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 things are, you know gonna gonna change even though actually they don't i mean trump actually you know it's there were riots but there's like what's changed yeah. in four years of trump i mean what's changed is the signal yeah you know yeah. this but this is this is all these people care about you know that all these people care about is you know that, that we're going to have um you know if if you if you watch a, a movie it'll have have like it won't have an all-white cast now that's what they care about and that's changed that has changed and it's actually changed partly in reaction to trump like it was a process that was already underway but it's greatly dynamized it's greatly dynamized because political energy during the trump era went solely into the sphere of cultural production and instead you know all that people have done is to constantly attack cultural artifacts and cultural production or ch try to change that as as the the apparent main business of politics now but of course what that means is nothing's changed this is grist for your mill isn't it which is where the political is just entirely reduced to the rhetorical and the symbolic yeah this well that's i mean that's my my critique yeah of really both sides though because yeah. i don't think the the contemporary right is equally i mean like contemporary right more explicitly oh. the contemporary right or the far right, anyway. This, you know, the Breitbart, you know, the the um, politics is downstream from culture. Like they have drunk the Neo Gramscian Kool Aid, which the the left drank in the seventies, and so we now have like politics, which is about cultural issues to an unprecedented extent. Um, no, but that's that's exactly right, and it, it should it should it shouldn't be. I think it's important to highlight that point because, you know. This is obviously a criticism of the liberal left as well, but it's just as true of the right and the far right. You know, the idea that we talked about this yesterday, you know, the idea that Biden and the Democrat Party represent like a genuinely like cultural Marxist movement is just kind of like insane. Like it's just laughable. And well, so what do people mean by cultural Marxism? I mean, that's the, that's the thing. Because, yeah. you know, I was saying this to you yesterday, yeah, sure. like, because it used to drive me absolutely insane. There was a period where like the right talking about cultural Marxism, I'm like, what are you fucking talking about? Like, what are you talking about? Like, what is this cultural Marxism? But actually, um, it means, it, I mean, I was suggesting to you, like, because I had a discussion on Twitter years ago uh, when I was on Twitter with a 
guy on the far right who actually gave me a reasonably good answer on this because my my big thing was you know the cultural Marxism is nonsense people always talk about frankfurt school and i'm like well the frankfurt school weren't like what you're talking about here like none of this stuff is true of them and then i started talking about marcuse of course the you know the get out here is that marcuse wasn't really a member of the frankfurt school but he was you know obviously frankfurt adjacent and it's kind of true like a lot of the stuff they say about cultural Marxism is kind of true of herbert marcuse um but I actually think the core of what they're talking about is, is what I'm just describing as Neo-Gramscianism. And, uh, you know, really, um, I'm thinking of that clown move here, you know, th- this, this move, which is the tail end, thick end of, I mean, you know, uh, for those who don't know, which I assume actually would be the great majority of people, right? There was this move in, in um, 1970s Marxism in the communist parties in Europe towards, towards the, the thought of Antonio Gramsci. And it, it was this, this, move, this movement in, in Europe called Eurocommunism which saw European communist parties break with the Soviet Union. So suddenly these, these parties, which for the last 40 years of their existence had just done whatever Moscow said, broke away from Soviet control and adopted this perspective based on the thought of the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, which said uh, on their version of it, oh, we need to be concerned with a, a so-called long, long march to the institutions. So we have to take over the cultural sphere, right? We can't have like... You know, the old model of a violent revolution, which obviously they'd abandoned years before because you know they hadn't been trying, they hadn't been trying to have a violent revolution in Europe for decades. So that's partly because Moscow had told them not to because it would have antagonised <laughs> the Cold War situation. Well, that's right. I mean, it, basically because they, you know, they're in a very difficult position. The Communist Party in Western Europe, particularly in Italy and France, where they're very strong, like they had an ideology which said we need to take take state power, smash the state, all this stuff, like from Lenin. But you know, Stalin had had a meeting with the you know with churchill and with um fdr and given the the west those countries so that like by their by the concordat between you know the, the western and the soviet union that those countries weren't allowed to go communist right so the those parties were in a horrendously difficult position they basically had to kind of be pro-american despite at a practical level um anyway very 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 weird but anyway they broke away from moscow but not in the name of actually having a revolution, in the name of, of pursuing a so-called peaceful route to, uh, to, to socialism. Uh, and that kind of morphed as those parties disintegrated because actually, you know, that, that declaration, which is supposed to revivify communism in the left, just led to it completely falling apart before, incidentally, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then even weirder, I'm really just I'm really running a hobby horse here. But even weirder, what happened after that was when when the Soviet Union fell apart, these political parties, which had no longer had any connection to the Soviet Union, themselves absolutely fell apart. Yeah. Like they couldn't handle the disappearance of the Soviet Union, yeah. uh, even though they were already opposed to it. But uh, I digress. Yeah, how did we get here? Well, because there's, one, one, there's a very long introduction to, to Laclau and Mouffe putting this book out, Hegemonian Social Strategy, which... Struggling to date, late seventies or early eighties. I, I want to say 1982, but I'm not sure how completely accurate that is. But they they put out this book, um, which actually was is associated with the uh, an academic move referred to as post-Marxism. Right? These are Marxists who ceased to be Marxist, and they really prefigured contemporary identity politics. And what they said is like class. That's pff, you know forget class. That's a thing of the past. They, they threw out basically the absolute you know central point of Marxism, which is class politics, and instead. Uh, basically, you know, said we're, we're in favour of of uh, a kind of culturalist politics. Uh, I mean, it's not really in its detail what people now call I mean, what people talk call cultural Marxism now is the idea that you know whatever the LGBTQI plus agenda 
and whatever else is going on and whatever cultural issues people care about. Uh, and also Marxism. Like, so they, they also think this is a- allied to class-based Marxism or economic Marxism. Uh, all that stuff is, is trying to win the culture. Like, there's elements of truth to that, let's say. But, I mean, it's, all, it's also highly dubious insofar as the, the, those, those kinds of culture wars that we're familiar with in contemporary society are entire, have nothing to do with economic, economic Marxism or sort of, you know, conventional Marxism. It, it's entirely tied to the neoliberal consensus. You know, if we want to talk about, you know, uh, the, the kinds of... The kinds of uh, norms that are being changed in regards to uh, LGBTQI or whatever it might be, that's, you know, if the Commonwealth Bank is on board with it, then, you know, it can't be Marxist. I know that sounds kind of banal, but it's just like this, this seems to be the conflation to me. Like clearly there's been a change in like cultural norms and it's, but it's not being pushed by the left. It's being pushed by the center because it's, because it's pro-business. There's a lot going on here. Like I, I substantively agree with what you're saying, but there's a number of points to raise to complicate that. I mean, one is that okay, like there's there's you know a certain there's a certain position. You know, I mean, it's it's associated with so-called tankies. You know, more traditional Marxist Leninists, Stalinists, who take the position that all this culturalist stuff is is nonsense and we don't need to have anything to do with that. We need to have class-based politics and that's what Marxism is. But you've got to acknowledge that most Marxists, most Marxist groups have tailed this cultural turn in a big way and often in a really prominent way. So, uh, I mean, the most obvious example has been Trotsky's groups, but not just them. You see it from, I've seen this from Maoists and, and, and people with like less clear affiliations, certainly with people on the far left, the kind of more anarchist or libertarian variety, um, strongly getting on board with, uh, you know, LGBTQ plus. Boomer confirmed. Well, what's the rumor that I'm I'm homophobic? So I don't know. <laughs> and that's the final podcast. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you, I don't think it's. What do you mean? I didn't even get it wrong. No. Like, what do you mean? I mean it was, it's a, it's a bit hard because I don't know. It was the way that you just looked really uncertain. <laughs> well, no, the podcast doesn't doesn't. Well, no, I looked. I felt uncertain. I felt uncertain. I felt uncertain. I felt uncertain. But. I, right. the, uncertainty, the uncertainty is because I genuinely, like, I know this is like, you know, this does open me to accusations of homophobia that I don't know. But like, I genuinely am a little bit unclear what the preferred current, which I want to use, preferred current nomenclature is. Like, I attempted to say LGBT by itself, but, like, and I said, I put the I in earlier, but I don't know how, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm worried that you take a political position by including the Q in the I. I don't, I don't want to be controversial about this, like, at least not right now. I just want to refer to the existence. You want to you want to designate a group. Well, no, I don't. I want to designate. I want to designate a tendency. Yeah, which is and it's really. I mean, I want to acknowledge the the multifariousness of this tendency, right? I don't think. I mean, I, you know, I think there's there's a discourse which I think rightly says that LGBT is not like a unitary phenomenon, right? Uh, never mind the fact that lesbians and gays have potentially different agendas. Um, bisexuals, like one would think, also in quite a different category. But trans people, like really obviously, 
have a different situation to people who have yep. you know minority sexuality yeah sure so but but it is probably fair to you know say that the general uh you know progressive pace of change here has been the acknowledgement of all of these and certainly when i'm talking about the left glamming on to that struggle and deciding that it's actually really important for them to i mean i think you know it's, there's a certain amount of disingenuousness among like when trotsky start talking about this stuff they, I mean, even more so with Maoists who, like, circa 1980 were saying that homosexuality was a bourgeois disease, but by, <laughs> by, by, I don't know what, but, like, by the, by the 21st century, they were, like, holding rallies to support trans people, uh, you know, or, or he's turning up to rallies to try and recruit members while holding placards saying they're supporting trans people. But it, this, this, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, when you're talking about, like, orthodox trots or, I mean, even, like, that orthodox but like trotskyists of swadison trotskyists like when they talk about these issues like actually in the back of their mind they believe in class and they don't really give a fuck about this stuff but i think the larger milieu of left-wing people who you know may at points be members of these organizations but you know uh, people who have far left-wing sympathies uh, you know a lot of them are you know lgbt people and they uh, genuinely really care about these issues and they, they think this is a really important struggle but this does create this very weird situation we have today that you're alluding to where the far left is allied to the vast majority of like corporate america like there's in fact there's, there's basically no serious exceptions to this so the you know large corporations now are, are almost entirely Running, running a pro LGBT agenda, and and I, I mean, I'm, we're singling out this issue, but there's other issues. I mean, issues around around race are really, you know, similarly inflected. They're, they're running that agenda, and that puts the far left on their side against Trump. I mean, this is this is the worst. It's my, my most recent Telus article, one the new new issue, which is is called "Is Fascism the Main Danger Today?" Trump and techno neoliberalism i think it's called but what i argue in that is that um you know that the left have decided like holus bolus so like, obviously not including absolutely everyone on the left but the genuine left the far left have decided to act as the foot troops of mainstream liberalism against trump who is seen as a fascist tyrant who like what hates gays or something i mean like you know trump doesn't really have i mean what what is trump what what is trump's like sin when it comes to their lgbt agenda i take it it's that he he was opposed to the supreme court decision that imposed same-sex marriage across the entirety of the united states I mean, Trump's Trump's position, which frankly I think is entirely reasonable jurisprudentially, is that it should be a state by state issue and should not have been, and that the interpretation of the Constitution that the U.S. Supreme Court ran on that issue was was wrong. That they shouldn't have decided that. And uh, you know, I think there's a perfectly good left wing argument that Trump is right. I mean, it's obviously not Trump is not making the left wing argument. It's a perfectly good left wing argument that says we need to allow like you need to allow some kind of democratic process here it's not it's not for left liberal judges to decide what marriage is based on 
their really their own intuitions because of their, their decision to read back into a constitution that cannot possibly have ever intended this consequence that it, it somehow intends this consequence that that your men can marry other men or something like that but do you think that do you think the opposition to trump on that topic is really to do with the kind of material uh court cases or legislation or is it more to do with the fact that he symbolically represents something which is contrary to what uh the left envisage envisages as either the future or either what america is or whatever because it seems to me that yeah. trump trump doesn't really stand for anything in some ways like you know he's a like you know he he's he's you know historically it's proven that he's he's been associated with democrats and republicans so he's been he's been a very wily uh mover in that regard in terms of how he's associated with himself but to me it seems like he he's clearly an opportunist i think your words were an idiotic buffoon um i actually think he's probably pretty smart in certain like concrete ways um but it seems to me it comes back to your point about the symbolic is that it's it's nothing it's actually nothing to do with what he's actually done or what he said or sometimes occasionally with what he said but it's what he represents as a kind of I don't want to say ogre, but really kind of ogre, like a kind of spectre, a spectre hanging over the States or what it wants to be. I'm going to say totem. Yeah, totem. Uh, no, ab- Freudian to- again. no, totem is absolutely correct. The father yeah. you have to kill. <laughs> well, no, but geez, I mean, yeah, you can double down on this metaphor. That's right. Like, really? But I mean, I, I, that's why when I read your thing, I was like, this is absolutely right. Like, this, the, the Freudian reading of this is correct. And it's the closest to the most precise reading because it, it understands the symbolic and mythic element to it. Um, and it also explains the psychological dimension to the political realm. And it, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I think, I think that's generically right. Generically true. I mean, I think the Freudian reading of anything is always going to be the correct reading. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. You won't hear any well, debate from that. Up to, except, except Freud's reading of religion, but you know, the, the Freudian <laughs> reading is not necessarily Freud's reading, you know, like Freud's reading of Freud's reading of Christianity is wrong, but like there's you know Lacan produces a superior Freudian reading, which is anyway. Uh, that's, so, that's a topic for another for another pod. Oh yeah, uh, but it's interesting what you say here because you're you're right. But like the, I mean, my objection like it's not an objection to you, but it's an objection to the symbolization of Trump because Trump as symbol. I mean, there's there's a there's a really clear equation here. It's like Trump equals Hitler. Yeah, like. That, that equation has been, and you can't, you know, I mean, it's the same, the, the, the old point, you know, that Hitler's the apex in our society, right? Hitler is the most evil you can be, you know. It, that, that, that once you make the, once you say, once you use the, the word fascist to describe Trump, like it's been done, Trump, basically, there was an incredible slippery slope of deductive reasoning that was like, Trump said Mexicans are rapists. I mean, you know, what did he, he said, he, I mean, one of the actions he said that Mexican Mexican immigrants to the United States were included a disproportionate. I mean, really, if you pass his words in any anything like a good faith way, what he was trying to claim is that there was a larger, a disproportionate number of criminals among Mexican immigrants to the United States vis-a-vis the American the Mexican population at large. So he didn't say that Mexicans had a proclivity to rape people. He said that Mexican immigrants were the bad ones, like the bad Mexico was sending out their bad. You know, immigrants here. But he said it in very florid terms. I have no idea if that's true or not. I presume it's not true, but anyway, it doesn't really matter. That basically, like he said that that was check the box racist, right? So he'd said something. He said something generalized about a subaltern group, 
Mexican immigrants. That uh, basically, as soon as he'd made that comment, and that was a comment like early in his campaign, 2016, his presidential campaign. Once he said that, racist, he's racist. Well, I mean, I've made this argument in one of my tells things, but like there is no distinction in the American public discourse between being a racist and being a fascist. And there is no distinction between being a fascist and being Hitler. Once you can describe someone as a racist, on the thinnest evidence, like based on, on, on doing something that you know, might be apparently quite banal, once you can make that stick, they're Hitler, literally Hitler, you're done. And of course, that, I mean, the Hitlerian image really becomes important because Trump's in power. So he's, he's, he's not just, you know, obviously if someone's tweeting on, on you know, treating racist things on, on Twitter, and there's a lot of racist content on Twitter still today, even despite Twitter banning a lot of people for doing it. Well, if you, if you tweet something racist, then you're just an average guy. You're not Hitler. You're just a, you're just a Nazi. But if you're a Nazi president, then you're, you're Hitler. And that's, that's where, where Trump went. That's what they believe about Trump. That's why they're celebrating Right, they're celebrating like it's VE Day because Trump is Hitler. Right, that they, they in their mind it's exactly the same thing. It's 1945 all over again. Right, and Trump is in his bunker. And okay, but you know my my objection is that that symbolization is totally at odds with reality. Like, there's no basis for that symbolization. Like, and on on any of the on any of the indices on which it, so Trump, you know, because he's Hitler, he must hate gays. Well. I mean, there's no, basically Trump is not like a homophobic guy. There's no evidence. I mean, like the racism allegation, yeah, sure. There's, there's a lot of evidence that Trump has like racist sentiments of one variety or another. I mean, on, on, on that front, I'm just like, yeah, he's, he's like a, 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 an old white guy. Like, you know, sure. Like there's a lot of evidence that Joe Biden has racist sentiments. Like admittedly, he hasn't said anything as stupidly racist as Trump has in the last five years, I'm sure. You know, I mean, if you want to go, I mean, this this goes to the other thing though, like which we haven't mentioned. I mean, we've mentioned the media, right? We've mentioned the fact of the media being where it is, but like the role of the media here, like if the media wanted to cast Biden as a racist and as Hitler, they could do it in fifteen seconds. The evidence is there. You, you he, the guy gave, uh, you know, the, the guy was intimately involved with openly segregationist politicians. The He's been the Democratic Party long enough that there were like openly racist guys in it who didn't think black people should be able to vote. And he was friends with them. He, there's, there's no difficulty in casting him. The reason that he hasn't been cast successfully as a racist is because the media don't want to do it. The media have decided this is the narrative and they're running it. And, you know, I don't want to be too conspiratorial about it because I think to a large extent, this decision making is just, you know, a kind of crowd based mass psychology that they've they've decided that Trump is evil and, and Biden isn't. But what's the basis for this? Yeah, I actually I disagree slightly with your take here, although I, I agree with the thrust of it, insofar as I actually don't really think that people think Trump is Hitler. I think they think that Trump is the path to Hitler. Insofar as so Trump is rather than rather than the defeat of Trump being 1945 it's really more like 1938 so like you know they 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 cut it off they cut it off just before the disaster it doesn't really matter but but the the point well, I think is that is that is right in terms of the historical frame they want to nip fascism in the butt that's so right. the idea is that if the they're saying this now so they're saying now because trump is launching court cases to re-examine votes therefore he's trying to do a coup yeah which is 
so that is yeah i mean it's to me just another example of of the insanity involved that they they're going to conflate like so, you know f- fascism like brown shirts on the street yeah. with like uh, uh you know like some vexatious court cases or something but the, yeah that's right the idea is he will become hitler yeah but i think the, the important point which is which is also your point so it's not not my original idea by by any means but <clears throat> the important point is here is that the media and the kind of liberal left here, and indeed, actually, a lot of the, the the further left, I think, are so focused on Trump and that kind of narrow political realm, the realm of the of his rhetoric and the realm of his of his symbolic sins, is to ignore what's actually happening, which is the domination of the the total victory of the tech bros, which is which is really your take, which is say this is where the actual political domain is now. The fact that we have surrendered, and in fact, we've actually the the left has allied itself with the technocratic Silicon Valley types now, uh, in order to prevent hate speech. We've given all of these political uh, freedom to these private companies. And no one is saying anything about this. And indeed, people are celebrating it. People are celebrating the fact that things are being taken down from Twitter with no understanding of what the process is in which those things are decided or adjudicated. And that to me, and I think you're absolutely right on this, assuming I've paraphrased it correctly, that to me is the great fucking disaster of the last sort of 10 years or so, is that the complete, as you say, psychosexual obsession with Trump. And he's basically just kind of fairly lame rain and the complete capitulation to these digital freaks and <laughs> warlords yeah digital freaks was probably not the right expression but it came out no no i accept i accept every part of that <laughs> including the phrase digital freaks so I, I didn't use anything remotely you know it was implied it was implied i thought they were freaks um yeah yeah it's bad <laughs> The weird thing, there's a really open question what's going to happen next with this, because there's there's this really prominent discourse on the far right, which is you need to, so that, you know, the far right are rallying their troops to go out and do mass protests against the the election to in favour of Trump. And the, the logic that's being run here is like, this is the last gasp to protect our freedom. And the dissent, there's, there's quite a substantial dissenting minority on the far right who are anti-Trump now, although they've 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 kind of dissipated. It's weird because I mean, as a, as a watcher of the far right, it's very weird how this works because the, the far right really turned against Trump during his presidency, and then as the election got closer, just have have basically swum back behind him. Yeah. But they swum back behind him on the logic that if Biden wins, he will finally ban everything. Like he will. The claim they make is that. Look, look what they've been able to do under Trump. Basically, they believe has resisted it. And the reality is Trump has not done anything. Trump has rhetorically said, oh, I don't like all this censorship on Twitter and so on, but has actually not prevented it from happening at all. It's, in fact, it's happened on his watch, like so much of what's happened, Yeah, right? But their idea is Biden will come in and he will put us all in camps. Like under Trump, we were banned from Twitter. Imagine what will happen under Biden. Now we'll all be in, in you know, re-education camps. This is, of course... I mean, I think it's absolutely ludicrous. In fact, it's exactly wrong. Like, it's exactly wrong because all this stuff happened because Trump was in office. Yeah. Like, because Trump was in office, it made logical sense to ban Trump supporters from yeah. social media. Yeah. If they can actually get rid of Trump, there's no longer any need to do it. 
I mean, if anything, I think what you should be watching for next, I mean, this is, you know, an argument I've kind of gestured to in, in stuff I've been writing, but if, if there's something you should be watching for next, it's for them to come after the far left. Yeah. Because that that's the logical next move. Absolutely. If Trump can be dispensed with, we can, you know, there's no danger anymore from the far right. And there wasn't really anyway, because they, they you know, Trump was elected and supposed fascist and did absolutely nothing. But they need to go, the, the, actually the next people they would want to go after would be the communists. Um, and we'll see whether that actually happens. I mean, I think it's radically unclear what will happen. I mean, in a way, like maybe one reason I'm, I'm so disturbed by Trump apparently losing the election is that I, I kind of know what hap- what's happening with Trump. With Trump in power, it, it's actually quite a cosy status quo. Like nothing's really going on. <laughs> if Trump continues to be president, no, but like nothing's, nothing's been happening. No, like, true. you know, under Biden, I just have no idea what is going to happen yep. with the, the coordinates of any of this stuff. Like, and, and I, everything I think is on the table, including the most hysterical visions of the far right that Biden will, will double down and somehow, you know, turn what used to be Twitter censorship into like legal, like persecution of right wingers. Um, for hate speech. I mean, there's, and there's some suggestions about that, you know, this, this idea, there was a widely shared article uh, from the UK where they were talking about how, you know, you should be reporting people for saying racist remarks at the dinner table and how it's illegal and hate speech. Can't yeah, I saw that. Which I, I gotta say, like, call me a libertarian, but that's really frightening. To no, me. absolutely. I mean, that's clearly like, bad shit. That's clearly insane. But on the other hand, like, I mean, we're so close to that already because, because, you know, Twitter and Facebook, like there's no real difference between that. The idea that people, uh, that ordinary people are like more guarded in their comments on Facebook and Twitter than they are what they say around the dinner table. I mean, it, this is already happening. It's already happening in the UK that people are giving prison sentences for saying things, unguarded racist remarks on Twitter. Uh, you know, not going to defend the racist remarks, but like, is is that the way to deal with them? And, but, you know, if you, yeah, I, I think people are already not going to make those remarks around the dinner table. Like they're already like in a position where, where they feel like they could be like, you know, if they're reported widely by, if, 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 if one member of your family decide to tell people that you made racist remarks in private, private, you can still get canceled. Yeah. I've found this and this comes back. There's another, there's another Freudian point here too, which I've noticed recently is that boomers of a particular type, when you're having a conversation with them, they will, purposely bring out bring up controversial shit in some kind of like i don't know it's some kind of bizarre death drive insofar as they are furious at the prospect of getting cancelled and then proceed to say the most outrageous shit that will Im- immediately get them cancelled whether by their kids or their nieces or nephews or whoever or their or their friends it's bizarre and but again the the, the point is not so much is not so much uh th- those individual uh individual examples it's the fact that what i mean because what they're again even though what they're saying is not going to defend it for a second it's 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 usually is pretty fucking racist right but the problem here is that their instinct or their their sense of what's going on is correct which is to say the the arbitration of moral rules is moving on between is moving on from collectives that is to say organic collectives that is culture and society towards private companies or the mainstream media of of some of some of some iteration and that is bad yeah i mean i think there's there's a sentiment on the far right 
on the internet, which I think, you know, it's quite self-serving then to say now, but I think it's basically, uh, basically how I feel about it, which is like a nostalgia for a time not so long ago where you could just say anything you wanted on the internet. Like the internet was for a big chunk of time, this wild experiment in genuinely free speech yep. because it was anonymous because, you know, it, it genuinely freed people from the historical restrictions of informal, organic, as you put it, cultural policing, and just allow people to, to just have, have wild experiments in saying what they, whatever they wanted. And the closure of that space uh, seems quite lamentable. Yeah, I mean, too, I mean, sorry, go on. No, I want to say, but what's the, the great reason for doing that is the completely false allegation that it's produced something negative. Mm. Like everything they say, you know, all this stuff, all the stuff that they want to associate with this has declined. Like, you know, America is a much, is, is a less racist country than it was before. You know, uh, Donald Trump, I mean, the, the big argument, one big argument is like, oh, Donald Trump's presidency was produced by this. Well, it wasn't because it wasn't produced by, you know, whatever like people might want to say about memeing Trump into power. Like, fuck all to do with that. That, you know, that's a tiny segment of Trump's vote. It has nothing, it's not, Trump was not put in power by, by internet Nazis. And, you know, it, it also Trump's presidency isn't that bad. Like it doesn't work either way. Like it's not, it's not causally related to Trump and Trump is not this bad thing that you need to clamp down the internet on to, to get rid of. Hmm. Not quite sure what to say about that. I feel like you're saying, I feel like you think, yeah, the internet is bad. Yeah, I mean, the internet is clearly bad. I mean, that's, that's yeah, sure. we've, we've, we've had this discussion before. It's, it's bad. It's, 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 I do agree it's, with that. It's cursed. <laughs> it's cursed and getting worse. I do agree. I agree people shouldn't be on the internet. Well, maybe, maybe, well, maybe that's it. Maybe you need to trust in the plan some more. Maybe, uh, maybe when the internet is banned, we will be able to stop going on Twitter and listen to podcasts and instead go outside and enjoy God's creation. As he intended. <laughs> no, I actually agree with that because uh, there's part of me is quite uh, slightly suspicious of that kind of you know libertarian hacker mythology about you know the early internet, which is this kind of you know because it because it is highly romanticized. Um, but there's also, as you say, there's an element of truth to it insofar as that it was a space of kind of genuine human freedom, at least of some kind. The fact that it then turned into just kind of always in many in many uh, circles, or at least corners of the internet into just kind of basically what what the what turned into trolling i I think it's kind of lamentable in a way um insofar as you know there are other things you can do with ultimate freedom than you know just saying racist and homophobic shit one would think um but also at the same time the fact that we didn't see the internet turning into essentially just a platform for the four or five biggest corporations to make us buy shit and control what we say uh, we, uh, frankly, we should have seen it coming, but none of us did. Yeah. I think we might leave it there. Yeah. Time to finish. On that note. Time to finish. Well, thanks, James. Um, I'll see you next presidential election. <laughs> see, you, see you in uh, 12 years. <laughs> no, I'll see you. It'll be like, it'll be like that, that, grand, that AFL grand final you have. We'll have to have another general election within the next two months. That's what the Supreme Court Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a draw. Yeah.